Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. And this is a bonus episode filling in the space between season seven and season eight, which should be coming soon, inshallah. And by soon, I mean in a few months, hopefully. All right, this episode, as always, is brought to you by Islamic History Exclusive. We have four seasons so far discussing the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, the war between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads, and two seasons of the Umayyad Caliphate. In fact, we are about two-thirds of the way through the Umayyad Caliphate. So if you need to hear more Islamic history, consider joining Islamic History Exclusive. To do so, just go to your Apple Podcast or Spotify apps and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you don't have access to those two apps, you can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History or at Islamic History this episode is also brought to you by the Prophet Muhammad podcast. This is a free podcast chronicling the life of Allah's last messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and it is available on all platforms. With that, let's continue our discussion of Malik Ambar. In the previous episode, we discussed the origins of Malik Ambar, how he originally was from East Africa. He was sold into slavery and somehow wound up in the Deccan region of India. He was eventually freed from slavery and by the late 1500s was the prime minister of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate in the Deccan region of India. We also mentioned how the Ahmadnagar Sultanate was one of the many states that rose from the dissolution from the breakup of the Bahmani Sultanate. Around this same time that Malik Ambar became the prime minister of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate, the Mughal Empire began expanding into the Deccan, thereby threatening the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. Malik Ambar and his ally-slash-rival Raju Dakani, they led the resistance against this Mughal encroachment into the Deccan region, However, by 1601, the Mughals had forced Malik Ambar to submit as a vassal in the first of many, and I do mean many, peace deals. So that's where we left off last time with Malik Ambar submitting as a vassal. Let's continue our story and pick up from there. Now, with the Mughals seemingly sort of having subdued Malik Ambar, there arose some interpersonal strife within the Mughal military command structure. In the previous episode, and I do strongly encourage you to go listen to that episode if you haven't yet before listening to this episode because it kind of helps everything make sense. I guess you could start here, but the last episode was pretty good. I heard it. Go listen to it. Anyway, in the previous episode, we mentioned how there were two Mughal generals, one named Abul Fadl and another named Kani Kanan. These two generals did not really work together. They didn't really like each other. They did not coordinate their attacks, which allowed Malik Ambar and Raju Dakani to resist the Mughals even longer than they probably could have otherwise. 
Malik Ambar took advantage of this internal confusion within the Mughal military command structure, and he started fighting the Mughals yet again about a year after the peace deal. But Malik Ambar was defeated yet again in 1602, barely a year into his war, his new war against the Mughals, and he again agreed to yet another peace deal with the Mughals. So the Mughals have defeated Malik Ambar twice, yet they decide to make another peace deal with him, and they give him a fairly favorable peace deal. The previous one was pretty favorable as far as Malik Ambar was concerned, and they give him yet another one. Simply put, the peace deal required the Mughals, not Malik Ambar, but the Mughals to withdraw their troops from around Pathri, and Pathri is in central Maharashtra, which I mentioned is a modern state in India, and this Pathri is about 226 miles east of Mumbai. Mumbai is on the western coast of India. Mumbai is one of the largest cities in the world. I strongly encourage you to understand the geography of where it is. It helps put everything into context. So the Mughals agreed to withdraw their troops from around Pathri and both sides, the Mughals and the Ahmadnagar Sultanate led by Malik Ambar, agreed not to attack each other. That was this new peace deal. This new peace deal between the Mughals and Malik Ambar lasted for about five years. During this period, during this five-year peace period between the Mughals and Malik Ambar, the lands under Malik Ambar's control began to prosper. They had been ruined after several years of warfare. They were now able to work the lands and produce abundant agriculture, which helped to enhance Malik Ambar's overall ability to wage war. But it seems as if, at least for this period of time, Malik Ambar was satisfied with the situation. He even visited the Mughal emperor, Akbar the Great. However, there was still conflict between the Mughals and Raju Dakani, who was also fighting on behalf of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate, or so he said. And he was still fighting the Mughals in the northern part of the Deccan. And the Mughals were actually having a difficult time with him. Raju Dakani, sort of like Malik Ambar, employed guerrilla tactics against the Mughals. He consistently raided and destroyed the agriculture that the Mughals controlled in their Deccan territory. And when he destroyed their agriculture, that hurt or depleted the revenue that the Mughals could raise, which they needed to finance their armies in the Deccan. So ultimately, it hurt them militarily as well. However, by 1604, the Mughals had finally reached a deal with Raju Dakani, and their deal was very similar to Malik Ambar. It's kind of, it's kind of different, though. Raju Dakani in the North Deccan region, he agreed to stop raiding Mughal territory, and both sides agreed to split the revenue from the agriculture equally. So finally, after about four or five years of fighting, there was finally peace in the Deccan between the Mughals, Malik Ambar, and Raju Dekani. But as I alluded to earlier, and also in the previous episode, 
there was a simmering rivalry between Malik Ambar and Raju Dekan. It was just under the surface. They had put their differences aside to focus on fighting the Mughals. But now that that fight against the Mughals was over, that rivalry crept up to the surface again. In fact, Kani Kanan, who was the Mughal Sipa Salar, he encouraged this rivalry between his former enemies. Now, this title, uh, Sipa Salar, which Kani Kanan held, Sipa Salar was a, a title for a Mughal military commander. There are lots of variations of this word that have been used throughout the Muslim world. It comes from the Persian word Sapahi, which means soldier. And in fact, if you remember from season seven of the Islamic History Podcast, which was mostly about the Bosnian conflict of the 1990s, but we, we began with the origins of the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans. And during that discussion of the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans, we mentioned how the Ottomans had a heavy cavalry unit called the Sapahi. So this is not the first time you've heard this phrase if you're a longtime listener of the Islamic History Podcast. Another variation of this word, sipahi, is the word sepoy, which was the name of Indian infantry during the British era. Now, Kani Kanan, in addition to being the Sipasalar or the Mughal general of this region, of the Deccan region, he was also the governor of Burhanpur. Hope I pronounced that correctly. Burhanpur is in the modern Indian state of Madhya Pradesh, which is just north of the Indian state of Maharashtra, where most of the story takes place. Burhanpur was captured by the Mughals in 1601, but before the Mughals, Burhanpur was the capital of the Khandesh Sultanate. And fun fact, Burhanpur was named after a Sufi sheikh named Burhanuddin. Just a slight aside, back to the regular story. So we have this conflict between Malik Ambar and Raju Dakani, and by 1607, it finally erupted into open war, and Malik Ambar emerged victorious. He defeated Raja Dakani, and all of Raja Dakani's territory came under Malik Ambar's control. This territory included a critical fort called Daulatabad. Daulatabad is about 160 miles east of Mumbai and built on top of a very steep hill. I encourage you, if you have a chance, go on Google Earth or just look up pictures of it, Google Images, and look up pictures of Daulatabad Fortress. It is amazing. This Fortress, as I mentioned, is built on top of a very steep hill. The hill, not the fortress, the hill is surrounded by a moat. Looking at this thing in the age of horse and elephants and camels and donkeys, no cars, no tanks, no planes, no bombs, none of that stuff. They, they had cannons, but nothing, no sort of modern transportation. This fortress would have been nearly impossible to attack. There's only one approach to this fortress. An invading army would have to cross a drawbridge to get over the moat 
and then make their way up this steep path towards the fortress. And all along the path, there are several choke points and defensive structures where any defenders could easily rain havoc on the invaders. So any invasion on this fortress, because once again, no fortress, no matter how strong, is completely impregnable. So it could have been defeated, but any invasion would be very costly for someone during this period of time trying to attack this Dalatabad fortress. Moving on. So in 1609, Kani Kanan and Malik Ambar went to war again. We mentioned how the peace between Malik Ambar and the Mughals lasted for about five years. Within that five-year period, Malik Ambar improved his agriculture and defeated his rival, Raju Dekani. But now, with all that done and said, Malik Ambar went to war with the Mughals again. Also during this five-year peace period, Malik Ambar had made many of the military improvements that we discussed in the previous episode. Once again, I encourage you, if you did not listen to the previous episode yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. And towards the end, we mentioned some of the military improvements that Malik Ambar made to the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. So Malik Ambar was ready to go back to war. And in 1609, he went back to war against Kani Kanan and the Mughals. Malik Ambar was also assisted by a man named Ibrahim Adil Shah II, Ibrahim Adil Shah II was the ruler of the Bijapur Sultanate, which was very close to the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. Ibrahim Adil Shah was concerned that he'd be next if the Mughals defeated Malik Ambar. So he sent 10,000 soldiers to assist Malik Ambar in his war against the Mughals and also gave Malik Ambar his fortress in Kandahar, which is in eastern, not the Kandahar in Afghanistan, a Kandahar in eastern Maharashtra, India. Well, in this new campaign against the Mughals, Malik Ambar lost the first few encounters against Kani Kanan, but eventually he started racking up victories against the Mughals and he was able to force Kani Kanan to retreat out of his territory in the Ahmadnagar region. He retreated all the way back to Burhanpur, and Kani Kanan had to send a message to the emperor, the Mughal emperor, to send more troops to assist him against Malik Ambar. At this point in time, the Mughal emperor was Jahangir. Hope I'm saying that correctly. Emperor Jahangir sent tens of thousands of troops down to the Deccan to assist Kani Kanan against Malik Ambar. I want to make a quick aside here. I'm not going to get all of these pronunciations correct. I'm trying my best, guys. This is not my, um, my native language. I'm doing the best here. So if I mess up pronunciations, I don't mind you sending me a correction, but... But please don't do anything outlandish, like leave negative comments, because an English native speaker from Brooklyn, New York, cannot correctly pronounce these Indo-Persian words. Cut me some slack, guys, all right? Anyway, Emperor Jahangir sent tens of thousands of troops down to the Deccan to assist Kani Kanan against the Mughals. And once again, Kani Kanan led the Mughal army down to fight Malik Ambar. This time they met at Telangana, which is also in central India. Malik Ambar had some sense though. He knew that now that Kani Kanan's forces were further enhanced by an additional 
tens of thousands of troops from the emperor. He knew he could not go and face Kani Kanan in open battle. So Malik Ambar avoided open pitched battles against the Mughals because he would have been overwhelmed. He would have been destroyed by the Mughals. So he avoided them in direct combat and instead used guerrilla tactics against the Mughals, harassing them consistently until once again, Kani Kanan was forced to retreat to Burhanpur. And so 1611 now, we're down to 1611 and another large Mughal force descended on Malik Ambar and the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. This time the Mughals weren't playing. They weren't playing with him. They sent a large force down to take care of Malik Ambar and the Ahmadnagar Sultanate once and for all. This time this humongous, this ridiculously large military effort was led by several commanders. However, this magnificent effort for lack of a better phrase this humongous effort was hampered by its own size because this military force was so large it required several commanders and again the these commanders just had conflicting personalities they disagreed they disputed and argued all the time which hampered their abilities to properly confront Malik Ambar and the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. One of these commanders was Prince Pervez Mirza. He was a military commander for the Mughals and also one of the emperor's sons. And just like his father, Jahangir, Pervez Mirza was an alcoholic. Fun fact, later in life, it is very likely that Pervez Mirza was poisoned by his brother, Prince Koram. Prince Koram, Prince Koram was a very interesting character. As I go through the research preparing for next season, Prince Koram was very interesting. We're going to talk about him later, inshallah, in this episode. He comes into play later on. But man, this guy was, was something here. He was something else. Anyway. Another commander, in addition to Prince Pervez Mirza, another commander in this new Mughal military effort was a man named Kani Jahan Lodi. He was an Afghan. He was also an advisor and close companion of the emperor, Emperor Jahangir. Now, these two commanders, they often disputed with Kani Kanan, who had been in the Deccan for years by now, well over a decade. So these two personalities leading this new military effort constantly conflicted and clashed with Kani Kanan, who naturally thought that he, being the one who had been in the Deccan for the longest and had faced Malik Ambar several times, believed that he had more experience and that they should kind of take his experience and knowledge into consideration. Well, these disagreements between all of these egos and, and personalities led to a delay in action, and Malik Ambar used this to his advantage. In the previous episode, we mentioned how the Mughals had captured a fort at Ahmed Nagar. While the Mughals were fighting amongst themselves, Malik Ambar put this fortress under siege and eventually captured it. Losing this fort was a major embarrassment for the Mughals and increased the animosity and disagreements between the Mughal commanders. Prince Pervez 
Mirza and his buddy Kani Jahan Lodi, they accused Kani Kanan of conspiring with Malik Ambar. When the word got back of this conspiracy, which wasn't true, but when the word of this alleged conspiracy got back to Emperor Jahangir, he recalled Kani Kanan and gave Kani Kanan's command and territory to Kani Jahan Lodi instead. The emperor also sent thousands of additional troops to support the war against Malik Ambar. But despite these large numbers, the Mughals still cannot beat Malik Ambar. They launched another campaign against Malik Ambar, but he continued to elude them. He refused to fight the Mughals with this ridiculously large army in open combat. And in fact, he was able to capture a Mughal fort at Kitki, which is now called Aurangabad, from the Mughals. Arangabad, or Kirki as it was known back then, is a city in Maharashtra, about 160 miles east of Mumbai. So now the emperor is frustrated. Emperor Jahangir is frustrated. Nothing he's doing is working. So he decides to reinstate Kani Kanan as the Sipasalar, the military commander in the Deccan in 1612. Prince Pervez, the emperor's son, he was the overall leader However, the real power and the authority, especially in battle, was once again with Kani Kanan. Kani Kanan initiated a new policy to try to take down Malik Ambar. Rather than just face him militarily, of course that was never off the table, not at all, Kani Kanan began bribing the local leaders to abandon Malik Ambar and join with the Mughals. He offered land and titles to both Muslim and Hindu leaders in the Deccan in exchange for their loyalty. Kani Kanan also tried to drive a wedge between Malik Ambar and Ibrahim Adil Shah II. Remember, that's the ruler of the Bijapur Sultanate who had assisted and allied with Malik Ambar previously against the Mughals. Now, Ibrahim Adil Shah, the Sultan of Bijapur, he responded favorably to Kani Kanan's overtures, but he continued to support Malik Ambar against the Mughals. In addition to Ibrahim Adil Shah II, Malik Ambar also received assistance and military troops from Muhammad Qutb Shah, who was the ruler of the Golconda Sultanate. Now, despite the help from these two sultans, Kani Kana's efforts to weaken Malik Ambar had proved successful. In 1614, Malik Ambar, now he had a much larger military under his control, he marched to Aurangabad to face the Mughals. Now this went against Malik Ambar's previous strategy of always avoiding the Mughals in open combat. So there's one mistake that Malik Ambar made. A second issue, not really a mistake, I guess, but he was also dealing with his own internal strife. We mentioned how the Mughals were always being bothered by internal strife on their end. Well, now Malik Ambar had to deal with that as well. There were some personal differences between him and one of the commanders from the Golconda Sultanate, and this caused delays. 
The Mughals took advantage and launched a counter-strike against Malik Ambar and finally defeated him in 1616. And this time it was Malik Ambar who had to flee. And he ultimately took refuge at his fort at Daulatabad. That's that nearly impregnable fortress that I mentioned earlier. Well, the Mughals now, they destroyed Malik Ambar's artillery. They burned down the city of Aurangabad and the Mughals looked like they were finally in control. Let me read something from the book, The Mughal Empire by John F. Richards. Soon after beginning his reign, Jahangir resumed military operations against Ahmadnagar. Unenthusiastic campaigns by a succession of imperial officers produced little result for nearly a decade. Malik Ambar had obtained support from the Jadavs and several other Maratha aristocratic families of the region. Finally, in 1616, the Mughal prince Parvez commanded a reinforced army that crushed the Ahmadnagar forces in a major battle near Jalna. The imperial forces looted and razed Malik Ambar's capital at Khadki or Kirki. Malik Ambar fled to shelter in Daulatabad Fort and resumed guerrilla resistance when the Mughals withdrew. Unquote. With this defeat, the commanders of the Bijapur and Golconda troops who had initially assisted Malik Ambar, they decided to negotiate a truce with the Mughals. And the truce was very simple. They agreed to pay the Mughals not to kill them while the Mughals went through and destroyed Aurangabad. So with this victory, this victory allowed the Mughals to reassert their authority in the Deccan region. And now that it seems as if the Mughals are kind of in control finally, Emperor Jahangir recalled his son, Prince Pervez, and appointed... Prince Koram as the governor of the Deccan. Prince Koram, as we mentioned earlier, we briefly mentioned him earlier, he would, in the future years, quite likely, quite possibly, he is accused of allegedly poison his brother, Prince Parvez. But that's another story for the next season of the Islamic History Podcast, inshallah. For now, the emperor believed that this new prince, this other prince, I should say, this other Prince Koram was more competent and could better manage this territory than Prince Parvez. So Prince Koram, he arrives in the Deccan and he continues Kani Kanan's strategy of weakening Malik Ambar's network. He opened negotiations with Malik Ambar's main allies, Ibrahim Adil Shah II, the ruler of the Bijapur Sultanate, and Muhammad Qutb Shah, the ruler of the Golconda Sultanate. Prince Koram wanted Ibrahim Adel Shah to convince Malik Ambar to return the territory that he had captured from the Mughals. Now, around this same time, the Emperor Jahangir had arrived at Mandu in Madhya Pradesh, which is just north of Maharashtra, so he's very close to the Deccan region now. Now, with the emperor so close, it made these two rulers, Ibrahim Shah of Bijapur and Muhammad Qutb Shah of Golconda, who were supposed to be allies to Malik Ambar, this made them nervous. And now they were more willing to work with the Mughals. 
Ibrahim Adil Shah II, he sent an envoy to Mandu to meet with the emperor, and they agreed to become a vassal of the Mughals. And he also promised to work on convincing Malik Ambar to return that territory. Muhammad Qutb Shah, not to be outdone, also sent an envoy with a bunch of gifts for the emperor. I'm not sure if he became a vassal, but I'm I'm almost certain he did. I just haven't found confirmation of it yet, but I'm almost certain he became a vassal. Anyway, as promised, Ibrahim Adil Shah of the Bijapur Sultanate, he began to apply pressure to Malik Ambar. And finally, in 1617, Malik Ambar agreed to return the fort at Ahmadnagar and some other territory that he had captured. However, he was clever enough to retain control of that major fort, the fort of Daulatabad and the area surrounding it. He wanted to keep this area and this fortress just in case he ever had conflict with the Mughals again, and it's no surprise that that was going to eventually happen. Emperor Jahangir also took up this policy of weakening the resistance in the Deccan. There's two major things he did. First, he bestowed the title of Farzand, which means son, S-O-N, on Ibrahim Adil Shah, the ruler of the Bijapur Sultanate. So this brought the Mughals and the Bijapur Sultanate much closer together, which pretty much put the Bijapur Sultanate and Ibrahim Adil Shah on the opposite side of Malik Ambar now. Emperor Jahangir also began recruiting the Hindu Marathas. We discussed them in the previous episode. He bribed several Maratha leaders called Sardars to come into the Mughal service. Now, these Sardar, when they joined the Mughal service, they would also bring their soldiers along with them. And when they agreed to work with the Mughals, the emperor rewarded them with lands and titles. Well, it should come as no surprise that in 1619, war broke out again between Malik Ambar and the Mughals as he launched a blazing new campaign against the Mughals. And this is two years later. By this time, the emperor had long left the region, gone back to dealing with whatever he was dealing with back at the capital. Malik Ambar launched a new campaign against the Mughals, and he also utilized Hindu Marathas in this new war. By the way, these Marathas, from what I'm reading, they seem to switch allegiances frequently. It's like wherever the wind blew, whoever paid them the most, they would give their allegiance to that individual or that group. By 1620, Malik Ambar had almost completely chased the Mughals out of the Deccan. The Mughals had gone from almost completely controlling and subduing the Deccan to being almost completely thrown out of the Deccan. The only territory that the Mughals still controlled were Borhanpur and the Ahmadnagar Fortress, and both of these were under siege by Malik Ambar. Kani Kanan, who was still the Sipasalar, or military commander of the region, he was taken completely by surprise by how quickly things happened, how quickly he had lost control of the Deccan. He sent an urgent message to Prince Karam for help, but Prince Karam was far away. He's way north in Kangra, which is near Kashmir. So the prince had to first achieve his victory in Kangra. He defeated his enemies in Kangra, then turned and headed back down south to the Deccan to deal with Malik Ambar. And that's where we're going to end for today.
inshallah, in the next episode, we will discuss Prince Quran's return to the Deccan. We will discuss how Mughal court politics and this fighting in the Deccan intersect and come together. And inshallah, we will also discuss the major battle of Batavadi. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.